We're going to continue in our worship this morning as we jump right back into Acts chapter 13. And if you would stand, we're going to read uh, Acts chapter 13. We're doing verses 42 to 52. And we stand out of reverence and respect for God's holy and inspired word. This is Acts 13 verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things may be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we pray that you are blessed by the study and the reading of your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So in this section of the book of Acts, we see a great tipping point in God's divine plan to transition from dead Judaism to the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church, because the church is alive in Christ. We've already seen over the last year many pivotal precursors to this transition. We've seen the command by Jesus for the disciples to be witnesses first in Jerusalem and then take the word out to the Gentile world. We've also seen the coming of the Holy Spirit that would indwell believers. Then the speaking in foreign tongues, which was a sign to unbelieving Israel. Then the building of a new body formed apart from Judaism, then the resulting persecution of this new body, which would fan the flames of its expansion, then the notable Gentile convert to Christ in the Ethiopian eunuch, then the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus, and his commission to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Then Peter's vision of a sheet being let down three times And God's message message to Peter being unmistakable. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Then the Gentile conversion of Cornelius and his household. Then the leaders of this early church are confronted with this transition. After hearing about Peter's Gentile conversions, they said, Then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance leading to life. Then the early church planning a beachhead in Gentile territory 
far from Jerusalem, far from the temple. Remember, the temple was the epicenter of Judaism, and they plan a beachhead way up in Antioch of Syria. All these pivotal movements away from Judaism and toward the Gentiles have landed us here in chapter 13, with Paul and Barnabas set apart by the Holy Spirit, launching their first missionary journey into Gentile territory to gather the first Gentile first fruits. In our verses this morning, we see Paul and Barnabas have come to this mountain city called Antioch of Pisidia, where the dramatic transition would begin. A great tipping point, not only for the book of Acts, but a tipping point for the great movement of the gospel, a simultaneous rejection of the Messiah, rejection of the powerful living gospel from one group, and the acceptance of that Savior, of that gospel from another group. The rejection of the chosen people, the elect people of God, and the acceptance from a people described as low ami, not my people. The rejection by a people inside the covenant of God, inside the will of God, and the acceptance from a people alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. The rejection by a people described as the divorced wife of Jehovah and the acceptance from a people who would form the betrothed virgin bride of Christ. Where the striking positional divide between the nation of Israel on one hand and the called out ones, the ecclesia on the other hand, couldn't be more clear. Because we are not the new Israel as the church. Because the question comes down to is, truly, is the unfaithful, divorced wife of Jehovah really the same as the virgin, spotless bride of Christ? A thousand times no. We see here the divorced wife of Jehovah, the nation of Israel in true character, rejecting God who she's in covenant with. While we see the submission, the acceptance, and the rejoicing from the virgin bride of Christ, the church, as she is betrothed to her Redeemer. And the great tipping point of that distinction, of that transition from turning from Judaism and turning to the ecclesia, the church, is right here in chapter 13. But let us not for, forget, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper each week, the greatest tipping point in the history of the universe is the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the singular message, the message of the gospel that Paul has preached to all men, to the Jew first, who has largely rejected the good news, and then to the Gentiles, which in our verses that we'll look at this morning, eagerly embrace the good news. So point one in your outline, as we start in verse 42, is relishing the good news. This is 42 to 44. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. You remember from last week when the rulers of that synagogue had opened up a, an opportun- a crack of an opportunity uh, 
and Paul would drive the tr a truck through it with the preaching of the gospel. In this morning's verses, we see such a wonderful response to that sermon that Paul gave. If it stopped right here, it might have been a revival with the people begging for more about this Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that is offered. And the verb here for begging is in the imperfect tense, indicating that this is a vivid, ongoing desire to hear more. Verse 43 indicates that those that heard the good news, the euangelion, included many Jews and devout proselytes who pursued, pursued Paul and Barnabas to hear more. Now, we understand who these Jews are. After all, the venue is a synagogue. But who are these proselytes? And we should not confuse the term as God-fearers, as Cornelius was, with proselytes. Both God-fearers and proselytes are non-Jewish converts to Judaism. But a proselyte is a God-fearer who takes the final step of circumcision. These are the real committed ones. <laughs> kind of like when it comes to breakfast, as the old saying goes, the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. <laughs> These guys were committed. They were committed to the law. They were committed to ceremony. And that makes the response from Paul and Barnabas so interesting here. They tell these Jews to continue in the grace of God, which implies that a seed had taken root in their hearts through the gospel of grace. Grace is the non-negotiable to salvation. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. So no man may boast. But grace is also the only way we continue in an intimate relationship with Christ in our sanctification. So this message would be so foreign to Jewish ears who attached a good work to every advancement in Judaism. And surely they would have expected Paul and Barnabas to tell them some good deed or some good work or maybe a sacrifice that they could do to appease God. But here is Paul and Barnabas pointing these new converts, not to what they could do, but only what God could do in building their faith, not by works, but by continuing in the grace of God. Verse 44 fast forwards to the next Sabbath. Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. This is so encouraging to see crowds gathered, not for a sign or wonder, and not to play some intellectual games like the Athenians did later in the book of Acts at the Areopagus. But the city comes together to do what? To hear the word of the Lord. And it's almost all of the entire city. Clearly, Paul and Barnabas were not idle between these two Sabbaths. They were out evangelizing. I mean, can you imagine letting Paul and Barnabas loose in a city for a week? And it reminds us of a previous verse in the book of Acts concerning Peter and John. Remember when the Jewish leaders came to them and said, do not speak in his name, in Jesus' name. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. So point two in your outline, we come to the predictable reaction of these self-righteous Jews. This is rejecting the good news, verse 45. And it's even before Paul could finish his second sermon. The reaction comes fast and furious. It reads, but when the Jews saw the crowds, 
They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So what were they rejecting? Not Paul and Barnabas. They were rejecting the gospel. They were rejecting God himself, his son, his logos, the word. They're rejecting the word of God. Certainly there was curiosity that gathered this crowd. But these Jews were rejecting the very thing that drew the crowd together. And that was the power of the word of the Lord. Luke emphasizes the impact of the word of the Lord four times in this account. It's only 10 verses, but four times in this account. The whole city came together to hear the word of the Lord, verse 44. Paul and Barnabas spoke the word of the Lord, verse 46. The Gentiles responded to the word of the Lord, verse 48. The word of the Lord spread through the region, verse 49. What a great reminder of what we should be focused on here at Lakewood Bible Chapel. The word of the Lord should be our firm foundation. It should be our focus, sola scriptura. After all, the word of the Lord is not dead, but it is supernaturally alive and it is active. It is in the Greek called theonostos, God breathed. The word of the Lord is the only thing in this life that is eternal. The only thing that is passing from this life to the next. So we must cherish every jot and tittle. It is a work. It is a force. It's a supernatural work of the Lord. And it will accomplish its intended end. Isaiah records, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. But we must understand that our adherence to the scriptures will also divide. For the word of the Lord is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Case in point here in Antioch of Pisidia, pure grace, pure truth, Revealed in the word of the Lord, the good news, and out come the demons like a colony of bats out of a cave. Filled with jealousy, they begin to contradict Paul and Barnabas, slandering what they said. So predictable is this pattern of Jewish rejection of God and his messengers. Remember Stephen's sermon, which led to his inevitable stoning back in Acts 7. Here's what, what, Peter said, or what uh, Stephen said. He said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who keep the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So what exactly did Paul say that lit the fire of opposition here? Look back in Paul's first sermon that Matt covered last week in verse 37 and 38. And we see the thesis statement of his first sermon. Speaking of Christ, Paul proclaims, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. 
Paul here just declared justification by faith. Faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, sola fide. He's offering true freedom, true forgiveness of sins apart from the law. Apart from the law. The question must be asked at this point, what is the point of adhering to a works-based religion then? The, sub, the, the title here for Paul should be Judaism is dead. And the subtitle should be The law cannot set you free. The law can only condemn. The law can only bring wrath. Because the law was not the end in itself, was it? So what was the law for? Well, Paul tells us what the law is for. As he told the Galatians, he said, So then, the law was our guardian. Other translations say our schoolmaster or our school marm. Until, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Here Paul is saying, stop putting yourself under the law. The law is there to drive you to Christ. It can't free you from your sins. Only faith in Christ can. To the Jews, this was a bridge too far. The law was their life. The law was their whole life. It was their whole self-worth. Their place in society. Their place in the temple. Their place in the family. Everything was based on learning the law, obeying the law, and trying to figure out what the law said. And Paul's preaching of the word of the Lord knocked the legs out of everything they held dear when he said this. He said, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everywhere Paul preached justification by faith, he generated this reaction. As if the gospel is a knife cutting through society, cutting through men's hearts. It divides, it hardens the self-righteous, but it softens others through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Another reason for this strong reaction of rejection, it wasn't just that the crowd that formed was a sold-out show, that it was a packed house, but worse, the mere presence of the great unwashed in their place of worship, the uncircumcised, dirty, sinful, unjust, derelict members of the underclass. You know, the Jews would put up with the Gentiles sit in the back of their synagogue, out of the way, maybe they'd pay attention, maybe they'd become proselytes. That was bearable. But now to have these Gentile pagan dogs having equal access to the same body as the Jews, to claim the same Messiah as the Jews, and the same promise of salvation as the Jews? If this Jesus be the Messiah of all men, they wanted no part of him. They could not endure this teaching that would open the floodgates to the unworthy, the unrighteous in their eyes. John MacArthur rightly says, the narrow-minded view of salvation as an exclusively Jewish possession is even foreign to the Old Testament, which clearly taught that Messiah would be sent to the Gentiles as well. Yet jealous rage filled their hearts and abusive language poured from their lips, contradicting Paul and Barnabas as they preached the word of the Lord. And this confrontation 
would lead to a decisive resetting of the direction of evangelism. Not just for an individual here or maybe a household there, but from one people group to another. From the elect nation of Israel to the elect from among the Gentile world. And this redirection that we see starting here in Antioch of Pisidia would only increase throughout the rest of the book of Acts and then redound worldwide for the next 2,000 years. But it began here in the book of Acts with all these pivotal movements of God bringing us to a tipping point that we see in these next two verses. This is point three in your outline. Redirecting the evangelism of the good news. Verses 46 and 47. And it reads, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Speaking boldly here indicates that Paul and Barnabas were filled with the Holy Spirit. And by saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Here these bold apostles were following the lead and command of Jesus himself, who in Acts chapter 1 said, instructed them and told them to start with the Jews in Jerusalem. It reads in verse 8, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Paul, years later, when writing to the Romans, would boldly emphasize this very point. In Romans, he he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it was necessary, it was pressing, it was urgent that the good news start in Jerusalem with the Jews. But clearly it was not to stop there, but it was to go worldwide as it is still going today. But guess what? It has also continued to this very hour. The consistent pattern of rejection by the Jews, rejecting their own Messiah. As verse 46 records, they thrust aside the good news. Luke here using Greek terminology that indicates this was a continual pushing aside with force. And as a result of their continued rejection over the centuries of God and now the rejection of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, who came to his own and his own received him not, verse 46 indicates they judged themselves unworthy of eternal life, which is the fulfillment of the prophecy from Habakkuk. Cited by Paul back in verse 41. You guys remember from last week. It read, look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. So the message of salvation, the good news that Paul and Barnabas were preaching, contains the power of God for eternal life. Yet these Jews in Antioch of Pisidia, because of their bold rejection, because of their bold unbelief in the Messiah, received instead the bold judgment of eternity in hell. Human responsibility for unbelief in Jesus Christ? Yes, each soul is utterly responsible for their rejection of the Son of God. 
John 3 records, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Is unbelief a sin? Absolutely. Jesus told the Pharisees three times in John 8, they would die in their sins. For what? I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Back in verse 46, we see as a result of the rejection of the good news and thereby bringing eternal judgment on themselves, that we come to this dramatic statement by Paul and Barnabas saying we are turning to the Gentiles. Not only does the whole chapter of 13 seem to be building to this statement, but so does the whole narrative of the book of Acts from start to finish. The first chapter of the book of Acts, as we've, we've looked at, Jesus told them to be witnesses in Jerusalem to the Jews first, and then to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And then in the final chapter of the book of Acts, Paul would bookend this fulfillment of this prophecy with his final words. His final words would be, therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. But back in verses 46 and 47, we see smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts, the tipping point of this transition from the Jews to the Gentiles. Paul even making his case by turning to their own prophet Isaiah, reminding them of the prophecy of what God told them to speak. It reads, For so God has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Isaiah's focus was on the coming Messiah, to be the chosen, to be the elect servant to the nation of Israel, but also to be a light to the Gentiles. Simeon also applied this phrase, a light to, for the Gentiles, to the infant Jesus. Remember when Joseph and Mary brought him into the temple and because of Mosaic law, they had him dedicated in Luke 2. So Jesus was a servant of God to bring the illumination to the nations, to the Gentiles. And now we see Paul and Barnabas cast in the same role as servants. What a blessed commission for Paul and Barnabas to be carrying on as an extension the continued work of the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not only a dramatic turning to the Gentiles, this is a divinely prophetic turning to the Gentiles. And that would bring us to point four in your outline, rejoicing in the good news, verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, this is one of those land mines in Scripture. It literally stops you in your tracks. Maybe you're doing your daily Bible reading. Early in the morning, late at night, you're, you're cruising through Acts 13. Pretty long chapter, but you're getting towards the end. And you hit a verse like this. And your brain comes to a screeching halt. Because this verse must be understood. It can't be ignored. If you try and ignore a verse like this, it will torment you. It will rob sleep 
from your eyes. It is not that its meaning is unclear. It is not hard to understand. It's not confusing. Yet it is the truth of this verse that has challenged the theology of new believers and seasoned theologians for the last 2,000 years. But before we deal in earnest with those final 10 words in this verse, let's first look at the first part of the verse, which contains one of the greatest reactions to the gospel in the scripture. It reads, and when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? They heard the good news. They heard the euangelion. They heard the gospel. They began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord. You know, this is like a preview of heavenly happiness. This is a snapshot of eternity. This is what we're going to be doing for eternity. And it's showing that regeneration in an unbeliever is transformational on the inside. A new heart, a renewed and regenerated soul. You know, this regeneration is compared to creation itself, creation of the universe in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. An amazing, an amazing comparison here. And it's a, it's a let there be light moment in our souls when God reveals his son to us. It reads, for God who said, think Genesis 1 here, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yet unlike the cosmic outward formation of all creation itself, in Genesis chapter 1, in this new creation, in this new life, this regeneration of a believer, it is an inward transformation, changing us from the inside out. And this explains the rejoicing that we see in verse 48. But then the great joy of the first part of verse 48 is tempered by the deep theological implications of the sovereignty of God in the second part of verse 48, which reads, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Can this be? You should be asking yourself. Is this true? Were we appointed to eternal life by God before we believed? Is there an elect of God? Did God elect us like he elected Abram, like he elected Moses, like he elected the nation of Israel, whom he called mine elect? Are we chosen? Are we elect in Christ? Before the foundation of the world? The scripture affirmed this. You should be asking yourself, are we foreknown? Are we pre destinated, which means our our destiny is predetermined. Is God the potter and we the clay? Can we the clay say to the potter, why have you made me like this? This verse should humble us. It should set us back on our heels and drop us to our knees saying, God, you are sovereign. And immediately we should ponder this election. Why me, Lord? Why would you appoint me a sinner? Why would you give me a rebel the gift of faith? How did my name end up in the book of life? How did that happen? That is the proper response. 
Now, some have thought to work around this verse, arguing that it was our belief first that then made us appointed to eternal life. Yet the key to untying the knot that, there's, that this verse presents to so many who want to flip the order of the verse lies in the word appointed. It, it's also translated ordained or assigned or enrolled. It's the Greek word tasso. Tasso was used four times by Luke in the book of Acts, and each time it means appointed, ordained, assigned, or enrolled to something. Here it refers to God's sovereign work over salvation, where God has pre-appointed, pre-ordained, pre-assigned, and pre-enrolled those who come to eternal life. How do we know that? Because Luke uses a pluperfect tense for the word tasso. So what does a pluperfect tense mean? Very hard to say, pluperfect tense. But a pluperfect tense is a perfect tense used to express an action already completed in the past. So as we apply that tense of tasso to this verse, we see that it points to an appointing, an assigning, an ordaining, an enrolling previously done in the past prior to this day when the Gentiles heard the living gospel. So the correct order is as it reads, and as all reputable translations record, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, this order of appointment preceding faith was stated by Jesus himself in a verse that John Piper calls the most mind-boggling verse in Scripture. You're wondering what it is. In John 10, the Jews challenged Jesus. And they asked him again if he was, in fact, was he the Messiah? Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You are not my sheep. Do you see the same order here? They were not his sheep, not because they did not believe first. They did not believe because they were not first his sheep. In other words, belief follows a prior inclusion as one of his sheep. This is the same presentation as verse 48. They were not appointed because they believed. They believed because they were first appointed. Again, belief follows, in this case, prior appointment, prior assignment, prior ordainment, or prior enrollment. Jesus was clear that no one can come to me, meaning believe, unless the Father first draws him. Belief, again, follows that drawing of God, the calling of God first. Warren Wearsby comments on this verse concerning the word tasso. He said the word translated ordained means enrolled and indicates that God's people have their names written in God's book, a book which contains the names of all who have eternal life. That book of life, sometimes called the Lamb's book of life, that Wearsby refers to the elect being enrolled in, is mentioned in the book of Revelation twice, in chapter 13 and chapter 17. 
In chapter 13, it reads, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. And then verse in, in chapter 17, it reads, The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. So really in the language of John 10 and Romans 8, it is the sheep that Jesus has foreknown from eternity past, written in the book of life. And it is only those sheep that he foreknows that are ordained to eternal life. And remember, every time the word foreknow or foreknown, prognosco is used in the New Testament, every time, when God is the subject and foreknows or foreknown is the verb, it always refers to foreknowing people. It never refers to that false notion of simply knowing future actions. That there's no scriptural evidence of that. But look at the contrast that this verse is to verse 46, where the gospel rejectors had judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. Human responsibility for unbelief, contrasting the divine sovereignty for belief right here in this section of Scripture. As it has been said, you alone are responsible for your unbelief. And God alone is responsible for your belief. If you believe, God gets the credit. If you don't believe, you get the blame. You can never get away from this wonderful combination, mysterious combination of divine sovereignty and human responsibility woven together in Scripture. And we even see it in evangelism. The divine side of evangelism and salvation here in verse 48. Then the human side of evangelism and salvation in our next verse, verse 49. And that's point five in your outline. Reproducing the good news, verse 49. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. You know, if we don't evangelize, if we don't preach the word, then nobody can believe and be saved. It takes both. God has preordained the ends, but he has preordained the means of salvation. We are not to be idle thinking, well, God is going to save who he's going to save, so we don't have to do anything. Rather, we are commended to go make disciples and to teach them to observe all that God has commanded. And actually, those who have the greatest faith in God's electing power are also those who, by the grace of God, have proven to be the most effective evangelists. Did you know that virtually all the great revivals, all the great awakenings were led by missionary pioneers who were strong believers in the election of God and they were strong believers in the predestination of God? Back in verse 49, we see the language of spreading the word. It reminds us of a farmer who would broadcast his seed onto the turned soil. Much as the gospel is spread far and wide in hopes of landing on good soil, soil appointed for eternal life. And since these were largely Gentile converts, this is really the first great Gentile mission 
that carries forward to this day as Jesus Christ continues to build his church to the ends of the earth. Yet, as was the case in, at the uh, synagogue in Antioch of Pisidia, when the word of the Lord is moving and revival is stirring, so is the enemy. And that leads to point six in your outline, removing the good news. Verses 50 and 51. It reads, But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. Paul and Barnabas are now faced with forcible expulsion. Just a few days prior, they were hailed as heroes with good news for all. But now a mob was incited to silence them, rejecting the good news they brought. A great reminder that no neutrality is reached when the true gospel is preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're either for it or you're against it. And these self-righteous Jews, the self-righteous will always reject the gospel message. And that's what they did in Antioch of Pisidia. Those Jews who were under the law, which sought to appease God through works and deeds and sacrifice. Yet Jesus did not desire their sacrifice, did he? But rather, what did he desire? Their cries for mercy. And who is it that cries for mercy? Those that rightly see themselves not as self-righteous, but as sinners. Like the tax collector in the temple who cried, Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Jesus said in Matthew's Gospel, and I'm always, I always want to pay attention when Jesus said, go and learn what this means. But he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, as we look back at verse 50, we see a chain reaction that started with the Jews. Then they incited the devout women and the leading men of the city to do their bidding. So how did these Jews from this single synagogue have the connections to bring the prominent people of the city to enact this casting out of Paul and Barnabas? Well, it was through the prominent women of the synagogue who happened to be Gentiles. It's an unusually common trend, yet it was the women who were raising children who were drawn to the moral teachings of Judaism. Josephus, a Jewish historian, recorded that a majority of the married women in Damascus were proselytes. So out of this Antiochus synagogue, the hostility of the Jews becomes the hostility of the women, which becomes the hostility of the leading men of the city. And thus Paul and Barnabas unceremoniously fell from grace as quickly as they rose. And in response to their casting out, they follow the instructions from their master to shake off the dust from their feet, a symbolic act against those that oppose them. It portrays cutting off communication, leaving the defilement behind and moving on. Normally, this is associated with the Jews dusting off their feet, dusting off the defilement they, they picked up while walking through Gentile land. So Paul and Barnabas are essentially saying to these Jews that cast them out that they're no better than Gentiles. That is quite an insult. Paul, later in the book of Acts, would again similarly, symbolically react this way. When he was rejected by the Macedonian Jews, he said, and, and when they opposed and reviled him, 
He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Jesus had commanded this very symbolic act in Matthew when he said, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. So they shake off the dust off their feet and they head to Iconium, which is 80 to 90 miles southeast of Antioch of Pisidia. And you have to love the response to this rejection. They don't get discouraged and quit, but rather they're focused on the next town. Why? Because God had his people in that next town. Those that were appointed to eternal life and as a result would believe. God himself, in a vision, would encourage Paul later in the book of Acts. In a vision, he, he reminded him of these appointed ones that were to hear the gospel. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And that leads us to the final point in your outline. Reinvigorated with the good news. This is verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, how would you describe Paul and Barnabas? Such a response. I would, I would say undaunted. A word that marks the boldness and determination of the ministry of Paul and the other disciples. Rejection wouldn't stop them. Persecution wouldn't stop them. Even near death wouldn't stop them. Again, it's striking to see the difference of the joy of these spirit-filled disciples as the gospel was carried along compared to the anger and the bitterness of the gospel rejectors who were stuck in dead Judaism. So four quick takeaways from this section. Number one, the gospel will and should divide. Antioch of Pisidia was fractured because the pure gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone was preached. And whenever the pure gospel is preached, there will be division. To one group, the gospel will be foolishness or even offensive. To the other, it will be the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. To all who believe, and that leads to our second takeaway, the elect will respond. All those appointed to eternal life will believe. Why? Because we are his sheep. Why are we his sheep? It's not because we're more spiritual. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're more inclined to spiritual matters. But rather, as according to Ephesians 1, because of his good pleasure. There's nothing commendable in us when he called us. When he called us, we were in the midst of sin. Sin running around in us like vermin. Just as when he called Paul when he was persecuting. And he called Zacchaeus when he was extorting and stealing. And that leads us to our third takeaway, which is how he called us. And that's by the word of the Lord. We've seen the word of the Lord as the active thread that ties this whole section together. And that is what so riled the opposition. And at the same time, it was the power of the word that brought eternal life to the appointed ones who were called. When we share the gospel, we must have total faith in the power 
of the word of the Lord, not in our words, not in our presentation, not that they like us, but the power is in the word. And that leads us to our final takeaway. Evangelism moves out. It doesn't move in. Evangelism puts the feet on the word of the Lord. Paul and Barnabas walked two to three days, traveling to Iconium filled with joy in the Holy Spirit to do what? To bring the revolutionary message on which hung eternity in heaven or eternity in hell to the next town and then to the next town and then to the next town to the ends of the earth. It's not an in-house ministry. Even in the beginning with the Jerusalem church, we see in scripture the confines of a church or even a house church being the place of evangelism. We don't see that. Instead, we see Peter and John going out, preaching at the beautiful gate at the temple. And we see Stephen preaching before the Sanhedrin. Believers come into the church to be edified and to worship God. That's what we're doing this morning. We go out to evangelize. Jesus said, go. Go make disciples, not come make disciples. And this is why we see the emphasis on the feet of the preacher, described as being beautiful, kind of odd, but they're beautiful. But how are we to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So to tie these four takeaways together, we're commanded to go out to evangelize, sharing the gospel. Although we know it will divide, God will use the power of the word of the Lord to gather his own, those appointed to eternal life. So if you're stirred up this morning, you're realizing you're divided against God and against his anointed. And maybe for the first time, you're grieved in your soul and you realize, maybe for the first time, first time you've mourned over your sin before a holy and righteous God Now is the time, today is the day. Loosen your grip on your love of this world. Mourn over your sin and come to him in your brokenness. Isaiah records, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. God desires not the law. He desires not your sacrifice, but your cry for mercy. As the tax collector in the temple said, have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. So cry out to him this morning, for he is merciful. Let us pray as uh, Peter comes up with the gang as we wrap up. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel. 